are listening to True Crime Fiction, feeding your addiction to the best of the written and the spoken word in crime. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so for as little as £1 at patreon.com slash truecrimefiction. There are some emotions, some cognitive processes, which different cultures don't do well with. It's nobody's fault something happened, probably at a formative point in the culture, which meant that whatever feelings or opinion was under examination, it would not again be the choice of that group of people. Many cultures which have Western Christianity as an early influence will find that one of the things that is not tolerated well is doubt. It started in Jerusalem with Thomas, a disciple of Jesus who, after his death, was told by other disciples that they had seen Jesus risen. Thomas, with a foreshadowing of the Enlightenment, says he cannot believe this. In short, unless he sees it. The disciples stay in Jerusalem for another week, doing what we don't know. Given that they had lost their leader in a fairly traumatic way, it is likely that perhaps they were grieving, maybe arguing about what to do next. They were possibly scared that should they leave their own homes, they might too become targets and find themselves tried and condemned to death. The Gospel of John records that Jesus then appeared to them all and suggested to Thomas that he could put his hands in his wounds from the crucifixion and believe that Jesus had indeed risen. The story is a testimony to having faith without believing. Jesus says that those who have seen and believed are blessed, but those who have not seen and still believe are even more blessed, setting up a kind of competitive protocol for faith. For centuries afterwards, Thomas has been called Doubting Thomas, and particularly in the Protestant branch of the faith, has been seen as subordinate to those who believe without having to see proof. Someone who had the chance to be great, but missed it through his own determination to only believe what he saw. If we fast forward to today, we can see in many of the cultures throughout which this story has been told as a real fact, doubt is not an attractive or desired state to be in. They prize confidence, certainty, believe that whatever is being focused on, you have to be unflinchingly sure about In a society where people are currently dividing themselves along ideological lines, it is considered a good thing to be unequivocal and certain that your point is right. In sticking to the fundamental rightness of your view, you are seen as standing up for others and any negative reaction you receive for it is considered more proof that you are indeed right. We want people to be confident. It gives us a certainty to move through life and tackle its obstacles. However, just a tiny step over the line from confidence is a place of blind confidence, which means somebody never doubts their own position or the broadness of their own experience. And it leads to a brittle and fragile kind of arrogance, perhaps even hubris. And the more public the hubris 
the more spectacular their fall from grace will be. Doubt in general is not fashionable. But the one area where doubt is a significant part of society and indeed is thought to be important enough to be written into law is that that you are innocent until you have been proved guilty and that in criminal court the evidence has to be beyond reasonable doubt. The last tenant can often cause problems, words like reasonable are ephemeral, hard to catch hold of. What may be reasonable to one person is not necessarily reasonable to another. However, there are times where the law is purposefully vague, believing that professionals and people involved in a case will have the intelligence and the wherewithal to be able to work things out themselves. After all, society is always shifting and changing and to have a set of completely rigid rules that are not flexible for different circumstances could end with tyranny. In shadow of doubt, that tenant is put to rigorous test. The podcast follows the case of the Johnson family, very few people's real names are used, who too many appear a happy and healthy family unit until allegations of horrific sexual abuse surfaced. Martin, the father of the family, was an exacting, strict and overzealous sports coach who coached all his children in the hopes they would be able to become professionals and represent Australia one day. Many families at the school Martin taught would agree that he was a disciplinarian, but many could also attest to his kindness and caring. So they were shocked when the accusations against him by his daughter came to light. However, if you've been near the true crime genre at all in the last decade, you will have been here before. This belief that someone does good, so they cannot do wrong. We all believe what we see, which is unfortunate for victims of abuse because abusers will very often go to pains and not let their abuse be seen and therefore continue on without much getting in the way. We know that even the most heinous crimes can be committed by people who occasionally do a nice thing or even worse, use their nice things as a way to deflect any criticism or blame. As the podcast goes on, we found out more about Martin, and that includes he was twice moved on from schools he has been teaching at because of inappropriate relationships with female pupils, including molestation and pressurising girls into sexual intimacies. Those who've been following the teacher's pet podcast and trial will find some of the themes here familiar. It feels like the case is cut and dried, That is, until a spotlight is shone on the daughter, Emily, who is making the accusations. It is easy to see Emily is troubled, and that isn't an unsurprising state for someone who's been badly abused to be in. However, there are parts of the investigation that uncover troubling evidence of psychological professionals involved in Emily's treatment behaving in ways that are not only unprofessional, but also damaging to Emily. We also hear of previous untruths from Emily and mimicking of friends when she was younger who'd gone through inappropriate actions from older men. It is at this point in the podcast, as a listener, 
you become a seesaw sliding from one side to another, not sure who to believe. There are points that are made by host Richard Gillette which feel a little forced. They go along the lines of, but no one saw anything wrong, or, but she always seemed happy, which brings back memories of Weinstein's PR team showing pictures of him standing beside women who were smiling as some kind of proof that he wasn't a rapist. Well, all the photos really prove is that he once stood next to a particular woman long enough for a photo to be taken, rather than being the kind of undeniable proof that a whole case can pivot on. It also expects women to only ever be one thing, either victim or supporter, and it does not take into account the many complexities which women have to navigate in their lives. Meaning that sometimes, often, We can find ourselves doing things we are uncomfortable with and smiling all the way through it. This set of evidence and questions around Emily's memories of abuse are going to be difficult for people who have been sexually assaulted and dismissed to hear. Juliet, who unmasked cancer fraudster Belle Gibson, does start laying out a case which has more strength to it, At Emily's hospital, treatment progress on her memories becomes more and more violent and disturbing. There are behaviours from the psychological staff which appear strange and indicate way too much emotional attachment or investment in Emily. There is the fact that no medical records at any point in Emily's life show any signs of abuse and as a sporty kid she was regularly having medical examinations. Most curious of all is the fact that Emily started a relationship with one of the policemen who'd originally been brought in for advice by her family when Emily was a teenager and her and friends were subject to unwanted sexual contact from a sports masseuse while competing abroad. It feels like all the relationships here that are meant to be professionals are crossing the line. It feels like all the relationships here that are meant to be professional are crossing lines they should not cross. But then again, if someone has not had proper boundaries from their parents, isn't their radar of what is and is not acceptable going to be a little off and other people will take advantage? There is enough strange happenings to let a sliver of doubt in, but no real or conclusive proof as everything can always have other explanations. I found myself weighing up my feminist values, which leads me to know that sexual crimes against women and girls are not easy to prove quagmired as society is with sexist tropes and myths, with my knowledge that memories of abuse can and have been planted in people through the now discredited memory recovery process, a psychological fad during the satanic panic that has ruined many lives and has now been thoroughly discredited. Then again, on the other hand, we know that fathers can do terrible things to their daughters. Just ask Joseph Fritzl. Listening to all the evidence It's not unreasonable to conclude that Martin Johnson would have been a very difficult father to have and it appears as though there was at the very least emotional and physical abuse happening in the home which he struggles to acknowledge the impact of. 
had his inappropriate relationships with pupils been uncovered today, they would have no doubt led to an arrest rather than a simple moving the problem on. However, that does not necessarily mean that he sexually abused his own daughter. The inference that mental health has played a large part in Emily's accusations also left me more than a little uncomfortable. How often in history have women's complaints, accusations and experiences been denied or minimised because they also have mental health problems? There are instances where women not playing by the rules of the patriarchal society around them have landed themselves in mental asylums. Indeed, the list of reasons why women have been committed in history will inevitably at some point be passed around a friend group to guffaw and laugh at, but underneath the jollity there is a series of sad stories, ruined lives and barbaric attitudes towards women and mental health, the shadows and stigma of which we still live with today. Emily's poor mental health on its own cannot be taken as evidence that she is not telling the whole truth. People with mental health problems are not inherently untrustworthy. However, the behaviour of the professionals around her does show that she may not have been getting the kind of treatment we would expect someone to have, which may in turn compound her experiences. Beyond Doubt shows us a family that is ripped apart. Some of Emily's siblings support her while others do not, leaving their grandmother in a damned-if-she-does-damned-if-she-doesn't situation, risking alienating half her grandchildren if she talks to the other. Martin's second wife, Susan, has also stood by her man and is also in jail for allowing the abuse of her daughter, and like Martin, proclaims her innocence. In many ways, we look to the law to give us boundaries, to let us know what is and is not acceptable behaviour, but also to let us know what the consequences of that behaviour is, whether it's a fine, community service or jail time, and therefore how serious it is. If we are expected to learn lessons and move on or pay a price for the rest of our lives, However, in this case, it feels as though the true crime listening community may have to throw its hands up and proclaim this case above their pay grade. Most justice systems give a binary choice of guilty or innocent. You are either completely vindicated or not. The only system I am aware of where there is a third option is Scotland with our notorious not proven verdict which while creating juicy dilemmas and get-out options for dramas, check out BBC thriller The Escape Artist, in real life it can cause havoc for those who have to live in its limbo of not being guilty, but not being innocent either. It is the most unfashionable of conclusions to come to, But having listened to the whole podcast twice through, I have to say I cannot come down on one side or the other. I cannot be unequivocal or certain. I don't know enough. There were parts of the story the podcast could not go into due to legal reasons, and I'm sure many other listeners will not know enough either. At the moment, when you don't know who is wrong and who is right, Instead of feeling like one side has to be picked, I prefer to sit with the discomfort of doubt and to allow time to work its way to uncovering more of this story. 
Is this fair on the people involved? Probably not. It does feel like the most rational response, though. My reason for enjoying true crime, like many, is sometimes the warm certainty that all will be well, the baddies will go to jail and the goodies will be exonerated. It's not the only reason to listen to true crime and the plethora of unsolved case podcasts attest to that, but it is a prominent one. It is the most radical of things right now in both society and true crime to say, I cannot take a side. I choose to embrace doubt. And wouldn't the world be a calmer place if occasionally we let ourselves be fallible, human, flawed, and admit that sometimes we just don't know? And we're okay with that until we can put our hands in the wounds. You have been listening to True Crime Fiction, the podcast that is feeding your addiction to all things crime. You can find our website at true-crime-fiction.com, on Twitter at true underscore crime underscore fic, on Facebook and Instagram as True Crime Fiction. Please rate and review on the podcast app of your choice. Music is by Kitty Kitty Meow Meow.